our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels in chronological order, in the order that the events happened. And the Gospels are just the four books in the Bible that document the life of Jesus during his time on the earth. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're going to begin in chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke. And I said this last week, I want to encourage you to be a skeptic today. Don't believe anything I tell you. I would love nothing more if you didn't believe anything I tell you and actually went into the text for yourself this week and studied and made sure that you understood it for yourself. That would be great. The question is not, is Jeff making the Bible say what he wants it to say? The question is not, is Jeff making the Bible say what I want it to say? The question is, are we allowing the Bible to say what it actually says? That's our only goal today. Not for me to make it say what I want it to say or to make it say what you want it to say, but to let it speak for itself. And last week we began our study of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's a famous message delivered by Jesus just days before his crucifixion to four of his closest disciples on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. It's this hillside on the side of the city overlooking the city. The subject, the future. What would happen during the first generation of the Christian church after Jesus returned to heaven? The coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would happen 38 years later in 70 AD, and the future beyond that, as we shall see. This is a very intense study. Most churches don't want to touch this because it's very academic, it's very in-depth, but I've got to be honest, I absolutely geek out on this sort of stuff in the Bible because I just love it when we get to study things that I never understood about the Bible growing up. I grew up in the church, and this is one of those sections, you would read it, and you'd be like, I've never heard anybody talk about this, anybody explain this, and whenever I would try and find an answer, the answers would be terrible and unsatisfactory, so I personally just love and get so much satisfaction out of studying through, uh, together as a church, these things that I never understood even growing up in the church because they're always inevitably absolutely incredible. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to move into part two of our study on the Olivet Discourse. And as I mentioned last week, most scholars believe that the Olivet Discourse appears in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, there are two major clues that what's recorded in Luke was actually a different event from earlier in the day. And if you try and make this all one event, you get into all sorts of problems because you're trying to make them be speaking about the same things, but they're not speaking about the same things all the way through. If you check out Luke 21, you'll actually discover that Jesus addresses the end times while he's on the Temple Mount where any of the Jews in the area could hear him. However, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, they've left the Temple Mount, they've gone up onto the Mount of Olives, and there's only four disciples there who've asked to speak to Jesus privately. Mark actually tells us those disciples were Peter, James, John, and Andrew. But the best evidence for Luke 21 not actually being any part of the Olivet Discourse is simply the fact that the part of it we're gonna study today talks about something completely different. Last week we heard Jesus teach a bit of an end times overview, then move on to what would happen in the first generation of the church. That content is pretty much the same in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But when we hit our jumping off point for today, Matthew and Mark go in one direction, Luke goes in a completely different direction. So let's jump in because these things are going to become clearer as we study through this together. We'll begin in Luke 21, verse 20. Get your pen in hand because we're going to underline some things together. 
It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, underline Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And I'm gonna give you your first fill in here. It's simply this, so notice this. The trigger event, the trigger event of Luke 21 is Jerusalem surrounded by armies. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So that's what you've gotta wait for. That's what's gonna kick into action everything Jesus is about to talk about. And then I also just want you to notice that the location of importance in Luke 21 is Jerusalem. When you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, he says, then know that its desolation is near. Desolate is a word that can only be applied to a place. It refers to a place that's become deserted of people and in a state of bleak and dismal emptiness. In the Bible, it can refer to both physical and spiritual emptiness. A place, a land, a building, something becoming completely empty of people and empty spiritually and even physically. Today we're gonna find it refers to both spiritually and physical emptiness. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. So while this event is gonna center on Jerusalem, armies are gonna surround Jerusalem, Jesus' instructions are to flee to the mountains if you're anywhere in Judea. Judea is pretty much the whole southern half of Israel. So he says, even if you're not in Jerusalem when the army's surrounded, if you see that and you're anywhere close by, you need to get out of there and flee to the mountains. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance, underline vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled, underline written and fulfilled. So what vengeance is going to be coming upon Jerusalem? What things have been written that are going to be fulfilled? The answer is quite simply the vengeance of God against the Jews as a people for rejecting Jesus as their savior. Jesus came, they rejected him, and Jesus said there's gonna be consequences for this. There's gonna be the vengeance of God as a response for this. If you think that God the Father is going to just be okay with his people rejecting his son, that's not how it played out. And as for the things that are written, there's many that I think are important that were prophesied, but I just wanna highlight what Jesus said. I put it on your outlines. Just a few days earlier, on the day of the triumphal entry, which we also call Palm Sunday, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he said this. If you had known, speaking of Jerusalem and the Jews, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because, even on your outlines, underline the word because, that means as a consequence, this is the vengeance of God, because you did not know, that means you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. So when Jesus prophesied that on the day he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was prophesying all these things are gonna come upon you and the city of Jerusalem and the country of Israel because you chose to reject me, Jesus, as your Messiah. It's heavy stuff, and if this is your first time hearing about these events, the summary is that in the year 70 AD, 38 years after Jesus says this, the 5th, 10th, 12th, 
and 15th Roman legions led by General Titus Vespasian laid siege to Jerusalem. They surrounded the city on April 9th, cutting off all supplies and trapping the masses that had been in Jerusalem for the Passover holiday. So you've got to understand, if you understand Jewish culture, there's more people in Jerusalem for a holiday than there is any other time of year because every able-bodied Jewish male has to go to Jerusalem if they're able to. And so they surrounded the city during that time. There would have been close to two to three million Jews in the city at that time. And they held the city, gradually starving its inhabitants all the way through the summer. And they systematically then went through section by section of the city, overthrowing it. The final overthrow occurred in early December. The city was utterly demolished. The temple, you know, not left one stone in place. The buildings and the people were destroyed too. Men, women, and children were slaughtered by the tens of thousands and the few survivors were carried off to become victims of the Roman circus games and gladiator fights. In those 143 days, 600,000 Jews were killed. Historians estimate that overall, around a million and a half Jews died from the slaughter and the famine and disease that followed. All of that is what Jesus is warning about here in Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Verse 23, he goes on and says, but woe to those who are pregnant and woe to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath, underline wrath, upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. These are just more horrific details about what's going to happen in 70 AD. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until, underline, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I had you underline the word until just because you need to know that's clearly another trigger event if you understand the language. Until. There's going to be something that happens. So let's just explain. What are the times of the Gentiles? This is just good for your Bible knowledge. It's the time period that Gentiles, non-Jews, have controlled or threatened Israel, specifically Jerusalem and more specifically the Temple Mount. The times of the Gentiles began in around 586 BC when the Babylonians conquered Israel, took their best and brightest back to Babylon. You might remember guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Those guys were taken off to Babylon in the Babylonian captivity after Jerusalem fell in 586 BC. From 586 BC onwards, the times of the Gentiles has continued. Even in the time of Jesus, the Romans owned Israel. And even if you said, well today, they have the Temple Mount back. They took it back in 1967. Well, here's the thing. They took it back in 1967 and then they did something that not even Israel itself can explain. They gave control of the Temple Mount to Jordan and to the Muslims, hoping it would bring them peace with the Muslims. Of course it didn't. But I can tell you right now, Israel does not control the Temple Mount. How do we know? Because there's a giant mosque on it. That would be my evidence for you. There's a giant mosque on it. Jews aren't even allowed to pray on the Temple Mount right now. The times of the Gentiles is only going to come to an end at the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back and sets up his throne on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So basically, Israel is not going to know peace on the Temple Mount truly until the Prince of Peace comes back, Jesus himself. So don't miss the big picture here because we read this and we go, oh, okay, that's interesting. But, but never lose the wonder at how incredibly precise Jesus is being about what events are gonna take place in 70 AD. 
He's predicting it with stunning specificity, even that the temple's gonna be pulled down and not one stone's gonna be left where it is. It's, it's really amazing, but here's what's really incredible. Eusebius was a Greek church father in the late 200s, and he was a church historian as well. And he writes in church history that while this horrific slaughter took place in 70 AD in Jerusalem, there was one group of people who were surprisingly absent from the slaughter. That group of people was the Christians, simply because they took seriously the words of Jesus that we're reading in Luke 21, that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out of there. And they did, they fled to a place on the other side of the Jordan River and waited out the whole thing. History records that not a single Christian died in the slaughter of 70 AD, in the fall of Jerusalem. You see, the Jews, even when they saw the army surrounding, they thought, they're not gonna touch the temple. This is the most sacred, glorious place on earth. We've had armies come and armies go. They're not actually gonna come in here and kill everybody. They thought God would defend them. But the problem was God was the one actually sending the attack, ultimately. It was vengeance, it was judgment. Church tradition tells us that the Jerusalem church was actually meeting and praying and the Holy Spirit spoke to one of the elders and said, remember the words of Jesus. Get out of the city now. And that elder told the other elders and they all said, this is true, we agree with this. And they got all the Christians in the city there because they were all represented at this prayer meeting and they went out, the Holy Spirit told them, go out through the Eastern Gate. They go to the Eastern Gate, that one gate happens to be unlocked. They get out and there's armies all around the whole city except for one spot immediately outside the Eastern Gate and they walk right through and tens of thousands of Christians left the city that night. Not a single one of them died, pretty incredible. So make a note of this, Luke 21 contains a warning for believers that would save their lives in 70 AD. It contains a warning for believers that would save their lives in 70 AD. That's pretty incredible stuff, pretty incredible stuff. We're gonna switch over now to Matthew 24 if you wanna flip there and I'm gonna give you your next fill-in right away to highlight the contrast here. So in contrast to Luke 21, Matthew 24 contains a warning for Jews that will save their lives in the great tribulation. Contains a warning for Jews that will save their lives in the great tribulation. And then when you're ready, we'll dive into Matthew 24, 15, and we'll immediately see these key differences. Matthew 24, 15, it says, therefore, the original word is just then. And then underline the whole rest of verse 15 here. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So write this down, it's your next fill in, and then we'll unpack this all. The trigger event of Matthew 21 is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Trigger event of Matthew 24 is not armies surrounding Jerusalem. The trigger event is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. In the Bible, the word abomination is only ever used to refer to something God finds disgusting, offensive, and highly insulting to him, specifically God finds the worship of any other God, an idol, or anything like that, an abomination. So the phrase abomination of desolation refers to some type of worship of a false God that makes a place physically and spiritually empty. That's what that phrase means. 
It's some type of worship of a false god that makes a place physically and spiritually empty. And we're going to find out that's exactly what happened. The location of importance, notice this, in Matthew 24 is much more specific than just Jerusalem. The location of importance in Matthew 24 is the holy of holies. The holy place refers to the holy of holies, the innermost and most sacred part of the temple building that the whole temple mount is centered on. It was the place where the very presence of God dwelt before Acts chapter two when the presence of God, the Holy Spirit was given to every believer. It was the place that only the high priest was allowed to enter and only once a year after great ceremonial cleansing to repent of the collective sins of the people of Israel. So we're gonna find that in order for this event to take place, don't miss this, in order for this event to take place, the temple is going to need to be rebuilt in the future. There has to be a holy of holies in order for it to be desecrated. Then Jesus makes sure that his word said what next? Check it out in your Bibles. Whoever reads, let him understand. That is a command. You and I just received a command from Jesus to not just move on to the next verse, not just to get through our daily Bible reading time, but to stop and make sure that we understand. Jesus has commanded us that we're not allowed to dismiss this as unimportant. We're not allowed to say, oh, this is just an allegory. It's it's nothing we really need to dig into. No, we're commanded to understand. So here's what we've been commanded to understand. Just see if you agree with me here. We've been commanded to understand what Jesus is referring to when he mentions the abomination of desolation and what it has to do with something written by Daniel the prophet. That's the assignment, right? Very, very clear. At least what the assignment is is clear. Well, fortunately for us, the abomination of desolation was actually an incredibly well-known historical event at this time, known of by pretty much every Jew the same way that 9-11 would be known of by almost any North American. Let me refresh your memory. There was a king of Syria who was a descendant of Alexander the Great and was a Grecian. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he ruled the region of Syria from 175 BC to 164 BC. He's a horrible human being. Throughout history, there are what we would call types of antichrist. These are people that just seem to be literally possessed by Satan, and they reveal that fact because they make it their mission in life to destroy the followers of Jesus and or the Jews. They're just obsessed with that for some reason. And in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes comes down from Syria into Israel and goes up to Jerusalem where to announce his arrival, he just kills 800,000 men in cold blood. You see, he wanted to establish Greek culture, including polytheism and a philosophy and lifestyle of hedonism and paganism. And he wanted to completely eradicate Jewish culture. Says Greek culture is the way to go. That's what we're gonna do in Israel. We're gonna wipe Jewish culture off the face of the earth. If you didn't get with his program, you were killed. Anyone who was committed to God and doing things his way was killed. And that's where that number 800,000 ends up coming from. Those are 800,000 Jews who said, we're not gonna do it. He outlawed circumcision and observing the Sabbath by penalty of death, and he built a pagan altar in the Holy of Holies. On his birthday, he decided to strip the treasury of the temple and use that altar he had built for the first time, sacrificing a pig on it before an idol of Zeus, turning the temple of God into the temple of a false god and spilling unclean, unkosher swine blood on the floor of the Holy of Holies. An abomination 
to the Lord and to the Jews. That event, that desecration of the temple was so devastating to the Jews because they venerated that place so much that event became known in Jewish culture as the abomination of desolation. Everybody in Jewish culture knew the story because that event actually became a trigger to stir up a guerrilla insurrection war that would ultimately be led by a man named Maccabeus, which means the hammer, that was his nickname. And he would actually lead a guerrilla war against the, um, the Grecian empire from which Antiochus Epiphanes had come and they would actually win. They would actually conquer them and they would liberate Israel. That event is ultimately celebrated by the Jewish holiday Hanukkah to this day. So catch this with me and make a note of this. Historically, the abomination of desolation was committed by Antiochus Epiphanes around 168 BC when he sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Make a note of that. Historically, it was when he sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And so here's why this is so important. Just track with me what we know so far. We know that when Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation, he's referring to an event that took place around 190 years earlier, actually around 200 years earlier in 168 BC. But when Jesus is talking about it now as we're reading it in Matthew 24, he's talking about it in the future sense. Are you tracking with me? He's saying when you see the abomination of desolation. So he's talking about it in the future sense. So how do you make sense of that? Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what we need to be reminded of. Generally, with our Western mind, we view prophecy through the Greek model. And in the Greek Western model of prophecy, you've only got two components. You've got prophecy, which is a prediction, and then you've got fulfillment. But in the Jewish model, in the Hebrew mind, there's a third ingredient for prophecy. They have prophecy, prediction, Fulfillment, but there's a third component, which is pattern. Pattern. The Jews believe that there's prophecy hidden in patterns. And when you study the Bible, you'll quickly understand this because throughout the Old Testament, there are various men whose lives serve as types of Messiahs, types of Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. It's not that they were Jesus, but it's that God did something through their life so that parts of their life serve as a prophetic pattern for what Jesus would be like as the Messiah. We have Moses leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness into freedom. That's a a life that's an actual metaphor for what God would do spiritually through Jesus. We have Joshua leading Israel to one victory after another as they move into their destiny in the promised land. That's a metaphor for what the Holy Spirit's gonna do in the life of faith. We have David reigning as Israel's greatest king as a pattern for how Jesus will reign ultimately as the greatest king on the earth. And on and on and on we could go. These men were all patterns of Jesus who would later come. So when Jesus talks about a past event, the abomination of desolation, as a future event, what he's telling us is that that historical event is a prophetic pattern for what is going to happen in the future. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? Okay, so what do we do now? Well, this really is a treasure hunt through scripture and we're gonna need to put this thing together piece by piece and however I do this, I won't be able to get into the full level of detail I'd like to. I'm gonna do my best, but if you don't understand anything, feel free to email me or chat with me after the service. 
So we know what the abomination of desolation was historically. We know the pattern. We know the prototype, if you will. The next place we need to go is where Jesus told us to, to the book of Daniel. So we're literally going to do a word search is all we're going to do for the key terms Jesus used. Abomination and desolation. I got to think those things aren't coming up a whole lot in the book of Daniel. So you just search for that and see what comes up. It's pretty logical. We just recently studied the incredible prophecy of Daniel 9.25. It's the most amazing prophecy in the whole Bible. If you're not familiar with it, it predicts to the day, 483 years in advance, the exact day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the day we know as Palm Sunday and present himself publicly as Messiah to the people of Israel. Well, just two verses later in Daniel 9.27, it explains what we're talking about here today. And if you're familiar with Daniel 9, you'll recall that in that chapter of the Bible, the word week is actually the Hebrew word for a seven-year time period. We have decades. They have seven-year time periods known as shavues, shavues. So please follow me here. Don't get confused. I'm about to share something. In what I share, I'm about to use the word week. Every time I use the word week, I'm referring to a seven-year period of time. Every time I say the word week, I'm referring to a seven-year period of time. So in Daniel 9, he records a prophecy about 70 weeks. And he splits 69 of them from the final 70th week. He deals prophetically with 69 of them, and then he leaves this last 70th week out. Daniel says there's going to be 69 weeks, 69 seven-year periods, from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem all the way up to the time Messiah presents himself publicly, which Jesus did on Palm Sunday. So Daniel says that time period is going to be 69 weeks. It comes out to 483 years. That deals with those 69 weeks. Then there's this gap between those 69 weeks and the 70th week of Daniel. And what we will find is that 70th week, that seven-year time period, is the time period that shortly follows the rapture of the church, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation. I'm gonna say this a lot in this message. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, listen to our series online, pick up a free jump drive with our studies on it in the back, but you gotta understand this to really get Matthew 24. So in the big series of end times events that the Bible talks about in prophetic books like Revelation, the first major event, the first major, major, major event of the end times is the church being raptured, being removed from the earth, taken to be with the Lord in the event known as the rapture. I always say this, if it's the first time you're hearing this and you're like, what? Please, please get this serious. I can't explain it in a brief way, okay? Shortly after that, there's this period of seven years that's going to begin. And many times we get confused because that seven-year period often gets called the Great Tribulation. However, the Great Tribulation is really only the back half of those seven years. The whole seven years should technically be referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel's 70th week. So if you're having a hard time following me, pick up the Revelation study, do some homework. So the rapture happens, then shortly after the rapture happens, the Bible says the one that we commonly refer to as the Antichrist comes to prominence on the world scene. He becomes a world political leader, he becomes the most powerful leader in the world. And Daniel 9.27 tells us about what Antichrist is going to do. Daniel 9.27 is on your outlines. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. One week in the book of Daniel is how long? 
Seven years. So Antichrist is going to broker a seven-year peace treaty between the world and Israel. But in the middle of the week, how long would that be? Three and a half years. You got it. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Sacrifice and offering could only take place in one location if you're Jewish. Only one location. And it's the reason they're not doing sacrifices right now. That one location would be a temple in Jerusalem. So this tells us that the temple is going to have to be rebuilt in the future. It's also why we suspect that giving the Jews a new temple on the Temple Mount will be one of the things that Antichrist will offer them in order to broker this seven-year treaty. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but a significant group in Israel called the Temple Institute, one of the first things they did after Donald Trump got elected is they've appealed to Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin to say, will you help us get a temple on the Temple Mount. They're just trying their luck. That's what they want to do. There's people who want to see that happen. All serious Jews want to see that happen. And many Jews today, so track with me here, understand, Jews today don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They don't believe he was their Messiah. Almost all Jews believe that one of the signs their Messiah will do when he shows up is he will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's a real case to be made that the reason they're going to be fooled by this Antichrist figure is they're actually going to believe that he's probably their Messiah, at least for those first three and a half years, because he's going to arrange for the temple to be rebuilt. Write this down. The temple will be rebuilt in the 70th week of Daniel as a result of Antichrist's seven-year peace treaty. The temple will be rebuilt in the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years following the rapture, as a result of Antichrist's seven-year peace treaty. But at the halfway point of these seven years, the Jews are going to realize they made a huge, huge mistake because Antichrist is going to put an end to these sacrifices that have been going on. And then we read this in Daniel 9, 27. And on the wing of abominations, underline abominations, there's that word, shall be one who makes desolate, underline desolate. There's that word Jesus used again. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate, underline desolate again. Our key words are right there. So the idea is Antichrist is gonna show up performing abominations, and we know that as a result of these abominations, a place is going to be made desolate. And this place is going to stay desolate until the consummation. The consummation just means a point in the future when something is finalized or completed. So in other words, this place that he's going to make desolate is going to stay that way till an appointed time in the future. So if you put all this together, we're told that someone, we know it's Antichrist, is going to make a covenant agreement of some type. We know it's a peace plan. It's going to be for seven years. Halfway through those seven years at the three and a half year mark, he's going to break that agreement, put an end to sacrifices in the temple. This tells us that the seven year plan has to include Israel, has to be centered on Jerusalem, and has to include the rebuilding of the temple. After breaking that seven year agreement at the three and a half year mark, someone, we know it's Antichrist, is going to do hateful and disgusting things to a place, we would suggest the temple because it's the subject of the verse, that will result in that place being left deserted and empty, we would suggest both physically and spiritually. And this is gonna continue till an appointed time is reached. We would suggest that time is the end of the seven year time period, the end of the great tribulation actually. We're gonna add more pieces to this puzzle in just a moment, but remember, Jesus has pointed to the historical abomination of desolation as a prophetic pattern for what's gonna take place in the future that's also spoken of by Daniel the prophet. 
So in your mind, you need to be thinking, okay, what sort of future event would fit this profile and include all of these pieces? And the more pieces we add, the clearer this becomes. In Revelation 12, 6, we read this about the halfway point of Daniel's 70th week. Then the woman, if you study Revelation 12, you'll find it's a reference to the Jews. So the Jews fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Guess how long that amount of days comes out to? Three and a half years, right on the money. So halfway through Daniel's 70th week, the Jews are gonna need to flee for their lives. And if you study Revelation, you're gonna find it's because Satan is trying to prevent the second coming of Christ by killing all the Jews. Antichrist is gonna begin to persecute them and try and commit a genocide against him. It sounds crazy, but here's the deal. Satan knows the Bible better than anyone outside of God himself because he's constantly looking for something he can exploit and pervert that's in the word of God. So Satan knows that God has prophesied at the end of everything, before it's all done on this planet, God is going to save his people, Israel, the Jews. And so what Satan is going to do during the great tribulation is he's going to say, there's one way God can't do that, if I kill them all first. If I kill them all first, then I can make God a liar. And in some way, in his mind, that would help prevent the second coming or at a minimum be a huge victory for him if he could make God into a liar by making him unable to keep his promise to Israel. We believe, according to Revelation, they're going to flee to a very specific place called Petra in the country known today as Jordan. Petra is that famous rock city that can actually house tens of thousands of people, most famous for Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, right? Last Crusade. That's where it is. We believe that's where they're going to head out. So if they need to flee at the three and a half year mark, we'd agree there's got to be a major, major reversal of things. First three and a half years, they're making sacrifices in the temple. They're loving the Antichrist. Everything is back. It's a new glory age in Israel and Jerusalem. But something dramatic has to happen if Revelation says suddenly after three and a half years of that, they've got to flee for their lives into the wilderness. It's because Antichrist is going to reverse his peace plan, kick the Jews out the temple, and begin a campaign to wipe them out. In 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes this about Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that, catch this, he sits as God, where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So let's get the obvious out the way. This can't be a reference to God's temple in heaven because nobody's ever gonna dethrone God in heaven. Can't happen. The only explanation is that this is referring to a temple on earth which would have to be in Jerusalem. So when we put all this together, Jesus pointing us back to the historical abomination of desolation as a pattern prophetically. Jesus pointing us to Daniel, who tells us when this future event is going to take place. It's going to take place at the halfway point of his 70th week. Revelation telling us that at that halfway point, the Jews are going to need to flee for their lives into the wilderness. Paul telling us that Antichrist is going to go into the temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God. When you put it all together, there's only one explanation that harmonizes everything. And it's this, at the halfway point, of Daniel's 70th week, that seven year period that will begin shortly after the rapture. Antichrist will go into the temple 
He will put a stop to sacrifices. He will kick out the Jews. He will set up a throne for himself in the Holy of Holies, declare himself to be God, and demand to be worshipped. At the same time, he will launch a genocide against the Jews. That's the picture that comes out of this. So make a note of this. The great tribulation will begin with Antichrist setting up his throne in the Holy of Holies and demanding to be worshipped as God. The great tribulation being that back three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. It's going to begin with Antichrist setting up his throne in the Holy of Holies and demanding to be worshipped by God. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. It's what he's talking about in Mark 13. And it's completely different to Luke 21. As an aside, remember this. In Luke 21, Jesus said, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem. So if you're in Jerusalem... You can see that, right? You're going to notice that. You can see that, no problem. Matthew 24, he says, when you see, but the location is the Holy of Holies, how would anybody in 70 AD see what's going on in the Holy of Holies? They weren't even allowed to go in there. When you really analyze it and think about it, it's a statement that's dependent upon technology developing as it has in our age. The way that people are going to see what Antichrist is going to do in the Holy of Holies is because it's going to be televised. It's going to be live streamed. It's simply impossible for it to make sense that Jesus gives a warning that he says, when you see this happen, when it would actually be impossible for them to see. As a fascinating note from history, I should also point this out. This blew my mind a little bit. In the year 40 AD, so that's eight years after Jesus has given these prophecies, Caligula ordered his governor in Judea, Petronius, to put a statue of Caligula in the Holy of Holies. He wanted to stick it to the Jews. However, Petronius is governor of Judea, and he's like, you're insane. If I do that, it's going to be 168, 164 BC, the Maccabean Revolt, all over again. We're, we're going to have war. It's going to be insanity. I was actually reading about this in Josephus this week, and there were just thousands of Jewish men who said, basically, if you do this, kill us first. And they lay on the ground with their throats exposed for like a month, telling him, just kill us first if you're going to do this, because that would be such a desecration of the temple to us. Petronius knows us. He's thinking, this is a terrible idea. So he delays obeying the order of Caligula for over a year. When Caligula finally hears about Petronius' insubordination, he sends orders for Petronius to be executed. However, there's a mix-up in the mail system, and while that order is making its way across the sea, Caligula dies. And through this mix-up in the mail system, news that Caligula has died reaches Judea before the command, which he actually obviously issued before he died, for Petronius to be executed. When an emperor dies, all of his outstanding commands become null and void. So the command finally arrives for Petronius to be executed, but nobody acts on it because the man who gave it, Caligula, is now dead. What's so interesting about that is that God seems to have intervened to stop another abomination of desolation happening in the year 40 AD. Once the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, there can't be another abomination of desolation until the temple is rebuilt. It's pretty neat. Let's keep reading. Verse 16, he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Underline Judea. Again, that's Israel. So notice that this has got nothing to do with the church. 
Nothing to do with the church. Not those who are in America flee. Everyone who sees it. Nope. If you're in Jerusalem, if you're in Judea, the southern part of Israel, get out of there. It's got nothing to do with the church because the church isn't there. The church has been raptured before Daniel's 70th week even begins. Verse 17. Let he who's on the housetop when this happens not go down and take anything out of his house. The idea is this. If you're on your roof, go use the outside stairs. Don't even go down into your house to grab something on your way out. Use the outside stairs, the fire escape, get out of there and run. There's no time because what's coming is gonna make the Holocaust look like the Victorian era. Verse 18, and let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days because no one's gonna be able to slow down for them. And pray that your flight might not be in winter. We've shared this before. Most of us think of Israel as like a scorching desert, but in winter, and you can go look this up online today, parts of Israel, especially the mountains where they're told to flee, become impassable due to snow. Then he says, or on the Sabbath, underline Sabbath. And I want you to underline that because that's not an issue that affects the church. I don't mean theologically, I mean practically. The Sabbath, a Saturday, doesn't really change anything for us. You can still go grocery shopping on the Sabbath here. In Israel, everything shuts down by law on the Sabbath. Public transit, every store, every gas station, everything shuts down. That's why Jesus says it's gonna be very difficult for you if this happens on a Sabbath. It's just one more indication here that he's talking to Jews. So he warns Israel that when they hit the halfway point of the tribulation, when Antichrist takes over the temple and demands to be worshiped as God, things are gonna change dramatically. They're gonna become unbearably intense. That's why Jesus says in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. That's where that phrase, the great tribulation comes from. And then underline the rest of verse 21, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor ever shall be. Now would you agree that when it comes to sources for information, Jesus is pretty good. He's pretty good. I think he's pretty good. I tend to side with pretty much everything that he says. So get this, Jesus himself is telling Israel that the Holocaust is nothing compared to what's gonna happen during the second half of Daniel's 70th week, during the Great Tribulation. Jesus is actually echoing the words of Daniel 12.1, which says, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So by doing this, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, what Daniel spoke about back in Daniel 12 hasn't happened as of 32 AD because Jesus is still talking about it in the future tense. Hope that makes sense. So Daniel gives a prophecy in Daniel 12. Jesus echoes his words. And by echoing those words, Jesus is saying, between the time Daniel wrote that and right now, 32 AD, hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's still coming in the future. But then Jesus adds this little detail, nor ever shall be. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, not only is something coming that's gonna be worse than anything that's ever happened to the Jews, it's going to be worse than anything that ever will happen to the Jews. Jeremiah 30 verse seven says, alas for that day is great so that none is like it and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. The Holocaust killed one out of every three Jews on the earth. Zechariah 13, eight and nine tells us the great tribulation will kill two out of every three. This verse is so important, the verse that Jesus has just spoken because it completely destroys the argument of those who say, hey, the Olivet Discourse the book of Revelation, it's all talking about stuff that happened in history. 
It's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and events that took place up to about AD 120 when there was the final destruction of Israel. That's not all it's talking about. How do we know? Because Jesus said, for there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. This is the phrase that proves the point. No, nor ever shall be. Here's where I'm going with this. Fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, horrific, horrible. The Holocaust by every measure was four times worse or more. Here's what that means. Those people who say everything that we're reading about in Matthew 24 and Revelation, it all took place between 70 AD and 120. That's impossible because Jesus said the thing that would happen that would be the great tribulation would be worse than anything that's ever happened to the Jews or anything that would ever happen again. So if something worse happened in the late 1930s and early 1940s, then it's impossible that Jesus was talking about events that happened between 70 AD and 120 AD. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? We believe there's gonna be an even greater event than that known as the time of the great tribulation. Then to underscore his point, Jesus says, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elects, that means the chosen one's sake. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That means they'll be limited. So here's what he's saying. He's saying this is gonna be so bad that if God didn't supernaturally limit the amount of time the great tribulation went on for, every single person on earth would be wiped out. But for the sake of the elect, it's not going to be. And so some people will say, aha, the elect, it's the proof right there. Believers, the church, we're here on the earth during the great tribulation. The only problem with that is the Bible because the phrase the elect is used in the Bible to refer to Jesus, Isaiah 42, 1, Israel, Isaiah 45, 4, the church in many places, tribulation saints, Mark 13, 27, even angels, 1 Timothy 5, 21. Here, the term the elect is being used in reference to Jews who survived the great tribulation as well as those who become believers during the great tribulation. Verse 23, Jesus says, and he's talking about while you're hiding. So you fled, you've got out of the city. While you're hiding, he says, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The implication there is that it's not possible to deceive the elect. Verse 25, see, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. While they're hiding in the wilderness, we believe in Petra, through the great tribulation, there's gonna be many rumors that are gonna come and say, Messiah's come back, you can come out of hiding now, come back to Jerusalem. Jesus says, don't do it. Writing of the Antichrist, the Apostle Paul says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders. Antichrist is really gonna do crazy, amazing miracles and signs and wonders. Jesus says, hey guys, don't come when you hear that. And now he says, this is why you don't need to worry that you're gonna miss my second coming. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's saying, guys, just like the most intense lightning you've ever seen, if you've ever seen sheet lightning, it just goes from one end of the sky to the other and fills the whole sky. Jesus says, in the same way that no one is going to miss that, 
It's gonna be like that when I come back. You don't need to worry that you're going to miss it. I'm not gonna show up quietly in an electric car. It's gonna be spectacular. Everyone's gonna notice. Everyone's gonna realize Messiah has come back. Something huge is happening. Verse 28, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. This phrase was also used by Jesus back in Luke 17, 37. And you may recall at that time that I shared, I had no idea what it means. I've realized since then that here in Matthew 24, I still have no idea what this verse means. I have lots of bad explanations from other pastors who are like really reaching to try and make something fit, but I'd rather just be honest. I have no idea. There is absolutely no unity among Bible scholars as to what Jesus is talking about here. Our best suspicion is that this is a turn of phrase that was around at the time. It was a saying, but we we have just no clue what it means. So I'm not going to invent something we'll find out in heaven. So the big ending question is really, so, so why do Luke and Matthew highlight these different events? Why do they highlight different events? Well, whenever you're sharing a message with someone, if you're a teacher of any kind, 80, 90% of what you share is gonna be the same no matter what your audience is. But there's a percentage of your message that's going to be tailored specifically for your audience. Bible scholars are in complete agreement that each of the four gospels was written primarily for a different audience. Matthew was written to the Jews. Mark was written to the Romans and Luke was written to the Greeks. The reason Luke doesn't mention the Great Tribulation is because Gentile believers don't need to know about it. Church isn't going to be here. Church is going to be gone. They don't need a manual for how to get through the Great Tribulation. However, what did Gentile believers need to know at that time? They needed to know what was going to happen in 70 AD. You had not just Jews, but you also had Greeks living in Jerusalem who would have been journeying to Jerusalem that time even to celebrate Passover. They needed to know what was gonna happen in 70 AD so they could survive. Matthew, on the other hand, primarily written to the Jews as a handbook for the Jews to use during the Great Tribulation. Because here's what's gonna happen. At the halfway point of Daniel's 70th week, when the Great Tribulation begins, many people believe that's really gonna start the opening of Israel's eyes. They're gonna begin to realize that they may have missed Messiah. And as they flee, we've talked about this before, they're gonna be reading Bibles while they're in hiding during the Great Tribulation. They're gonna find the book of Matthew and they're gonna find this handbook telling them what to do during this time. It's gonna be pretty extraordinary. And then lastly, I just wanted to answer this question. Why does this matter to us today? I love this stuff. I geek out on it. I find it incredible. It, it, It builds my faith. But if you're here and you're thinking, uh, so why does this matter to us today? Man, I came to church. I was looking for like three points and a conclusion. Like here's three things you need to do to be a better person. And then I could pretend I was going to actually put those things into practice this week and just go home. Why are we, why are we talking about Bible prophecy? What, what's the practical application? What are we going to do with this? Why does this matter? It matters because Jesus was dead accurate. Dead accurate about what he said would happen in 70 AD. He was right on. And that same Jesus has made predictions about what's gonna happen in our future. And I believe we're living in the age where these things are actually gonna come to pass. These things are actually gonna happen. That means I need to take what Jesus says about the future seriously. And I don't even just mean the end times. I mean that Jesus clearly has a command over time. He has the ability to look into the future 
come back and tell us exactly how things are going to go down in the future. And we often get excited about all these specific events in the end times, but what I wanna encourage you with today is to remember what Jesus has said about our future that has nothing to do with the end times, what Jesus has said about eternity. So when Jesus tells me I need to be forgiven by putting my trust and my faith in him, here's what I know because Bible prophecy is true. He's telling me the truth. When he says I need to put my trust in him and spend eternity with him, that he's the only way to get to heaven, that's not just his idea or his law. He's saying I'm coming from the future. I'm telling you this is how it's gonna play out. I can take his word to the bank. When Jesus says I should spend my life living for him and storing up treasure in heaven rather than here on the earth, because prophecy is true, I know he's telling the truth. I'm not gonna get to heaven and find out, yeah, I was just trying to motivate you to be a good person on the earth. You really should have accumulated money and stuff because I don't have anything up here for you. When I look at Jesus' predictions coming true to the letter, I can be confident when he says live for heaven instead of earth, that I'm not wasting my time and I'm living wisely. And when Jesus says he'll never leave me nor forsake me, that he'll be with me to the end of the age, he's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. That's why this prophecy stuff matters so much. It proves the Bible is true. Proves that the Bible is real, that it has a supernatural author and we can trust what it says about the future. More importantly, it proves we can trust the one who wrote it. We can trust the one who got us into this building, into these seats today. This is not an accident that we're here. And so I wanna challenge you and I wanna encourage you. When you look at your life, does it prove that you believe what Jesus says about the future? When you look at your life, is it obvious that you are living for heaven instead of here? Or when you look at your life, are you overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and worry, which reveals that you believe this is all there is? And if things don't go well here, then everything's going to hell. Does the life you live show you really believe God's with you, that he never leaves you, he never forsakes you? Do you believe what he says about the future? He's proven himself. You can test him with his word. And he's proven himself. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And We thank you so much that through prophecy in your word, you've proven your word is true and that you are true. We can take every promise, every word you spoke to the bank. So Father, I pray that when people look at our lives, they'll see that we believe you. We believe every word in your word. And if there's anything in our lives today that doesn't line up with your word, we just invite you to reveal it to us and to change us, Lord God, to make us more like you. Have your way, Holy Spirit. Do what you want to do in us. We're open to you, Lord God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.